God sees the bigger picture. Have you ever seen the pictures of Earth shared by our satellites or our astronauts? Earth appears as an incredible blue globe, swirls of white swashed around it, suspended within a sea of darkness. Compared to its cold red cousin Mars or the ringed gray stone of Saturn, Earth is a brilliantly colored sphere in the universe, bursting with life and vibrance. It's interesting to see that each planet is a smoothly rounded ball, as if the hand of God shaped them like dough before gently placing them on their rotation around the sun, a fiery orange flame-spewing mass. Undoubtedly, God knew that a jagged-edged planet wouldn't be able to effortlessly spin through space. Only one whose edges had been rounded off could make such a journey. Sounds familiar with our own lives, as we read in Psalm 8. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. God carefully crafted the universe in all its vastness, and yet with the same fingers gently sculpted fragile humanity into his own magnificent image, saying with confidence as he looked over all he'd made that it was very good. Even as he fashioned the half moon on each of our fingernails, he shaped the moon visible in our night sky. Whereas we may look down at the tiny intricacies affecting our own lives, God always looks ahead, for God sees the bigger picture. Just as he did in perfectly fashioning each planet for its purpose, the psalmist also cries out, I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. That's why we can be assured by his words in Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Just as none of the parent planets slip from the place in their rotation around the sun, so nothing affecting us slips past his notice or his plans. For as the prophet Isaiah explains, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are all formed by your hand. And I will go before you, God says, and make the rough places smooth, leveling mountains, smashing down gates, crushing bars of iron, all so he can give us treasures hidden in the darkness, secret riches. Why? He says, I will do this so you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who calls you by name. Sometimes, though, we get so caught up in our own small vision, myopic and sometimes skewed as it is, that we forget that God sees around, through, and ahead of us, years ahead, in fact. The instances in the Bible illustrating this are numerous. When God spoke his covenant blessing to Abram, he took him outside to show him the night sky, saying, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you'll have. And we need only read the genealogy of Jesus' ancestors listened in, listed in Matthew chapter 1 to see the fulfillment of God's promise. 
The same can be said of God seeing the bigger picture when tiny baby Moses was hidden in a basket and placed on the Nile River to escape Pharaoh's cruel edict of death to all male-born children. God saw 80 years ahead to Moses, now a man, his man, standing before another body of water, the Red Sea, and raising his God-anointed staff so God's mighty breath would separate the water, allowing the people to walk to freedom. And what about Ruth, a young Moabite woman married to an Israelite man who by the guidance of his father Elimelech found shelter in this heathen land? After the death of her husband, Ruth had a choice. As 10 years of marriage still left her barren, she could return to her family and seek another husband, as her mother-in-law Naomi advised. In fact, so vehement was Naomi that she even bitterly reported that the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Not a very inviting statement, was it? But whereas Orpah returned to her family, choosing to remain in godless Moab, Ruth persisted, practically begging, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Thus together they trudged to Bethlehem, Naomi miserably mumbling upon her return, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent tragedy upon me? If you were Ruth, would you have chosen to leave everything behind and travel to this new and strange place with such a resentful, cynical woman? Not many of us would. But whether she knew it or not, whether she sensed God's grace in her situation, Ruth came only to serve, offering to even work in the fields to support her elderly mother-in-law. And then we read, as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. As it happened, coincidentally, by chance? I think not, for as soon as Boaz arrived at his field, he noticed Ruth and asked after her. He was immediately impressed and sought to bring her under his protection, saying, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young man not to treat you roughly, and when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. And he cites her thoughtful care of Naomi and her choice in God's place of refuge as the reason for his kindness. Could they have foreseen God's bigger picture for their lives? Certainly not then. They wouldn't have understood the kinsman redeemer that would come through their future union. But God knew and planned and prepared for that future. And I have said nothing of Rahab, Boaz's mother, a known prostitute who rescued the spies Joshua sent into Jericho, whose scarlet ribbon would be a testimony of God's grace extended to the sinner through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
let's think of God's bigger picture in his selection of Andrew, the apparently quieter younger brother of the boisterous Simon Peter. Both were fishermen when Jesus found them on the shores of Galilee. We read that Jesus called out to both of them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And together they left their nets at once and followed him. Andrew was initially a disciple of John the Baptist, as we read in John 1, and heard Jesus called the Lamb of God. His interest peaked. Andrew followed Jesus, seeking him out, and was invited to spend the day with Jesus. Andrew was so impressed that he immediately went to his brother Simon Peter and asserted, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he dragged his brother back to Jesus. The rest, as we say, is biblical history. Yet here we see it is Andrew, not Peter, who is the first to proclaim Jesus the Messiah. It is Andrew that presents the young boy with a small lunch of five barley loaves and two fish to Jesus, with 5,000 hungry men sprawled out over the hillside. Although he doubts much can be accomplished with such a meager meal, nonetheless, he aids his fellow disciples in getting the crowd settled and distributed the offering, even gathering up the abundant leftovers into 12 baskets. None of the other gospel writers mention Andrew's role in this miracle, only John. But Mark does mention Andrew as a as present when with Peter, James, and John, they ask Jesus to explain the end times, thereby gaining personal insight into future events. And it was to Andrew that Philip went when the Greek visitors arrived to see Jesus. And Andrew, with the others, heard that those who love their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. But there's no other mention of Andrew in Scripture. Unlike his bold brother Peter, there's no mention of him in the book of Acts. There's no record of a letter that he wrote to the churches. The Fox's Book of Martyrs tell us that Andrew preached the gospel to many Asiatic nations, but on his arrival at Edessa, he was taken and crucified on a cross, the two ends which were fixed transversely in the ground, a shape now known as St. Andrew's Cross. Although Andrew isn't given much space in Scripture, does that mean his life is insignificant? Certainly not to those who heard his message of salvation or to Jesus. He may not have had the intrepid ministry of Peter, but Andrew was still a part of God's bigger picture. As shown in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Each of us are part of something greater than we can imagine. Each of us are part of God's bigger picture. Andrew Abram was as he looked at the star-filled sky and believed God's promise of countless descendants of unquestioning faith like him. Moses was as he raised his staff heavenward and watched God part the Red Sea. Ruth was as she stepped onto Boaz's field and into his heart. Rahab was as she hurried the spies to her roof and hid them under the bundles of flax. Andrew was as he told his brother Peter that he'd met the Messiah. 
We may think our role is minimal in the kingdom of God. Our position is minor in the whole scheme of things. But God always has bigger plans. He always sees far ahead and knows how significant each of us are in his glorious designs for the world. And no matter our current state, wandering and childless like Abram, a mere exiled shepherd like Moses, a barren widow like Ruth, a prostitute like Rahab, or a quiet, seemingly insignificant disciple like Andrew. All of us have an important place in God's universe, are an exquisite thread in God's divine tapestry. You may not see it now, but you can know it and trust the hand guiding the needle of your life through the cloth of his flawless design. Do you see now why he can say with complete assurance, I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good and not disaster to give you a future and a hope. It's because God sees the bigger picture. Amen.